podcast one production. Have you ever had that feeling about 15 minutes after eating something, you get that rumble in your gut and maybe a few beads of sweat and then you think, oh my goodness, I need a loo now. Oh, it's just the worst feeling. Well, that was me for six months after I had Angus. You know, it's bad enough being a new mum, but to have the fear of IBS over your shoulders as well, oh my goodness, it just added to the stress. Meals that I had eaten for years were suddenly causing me havoc. It was so hard to pinpoint exactly which foods it was, and after numerous tests, from hydrogen breath tests to faecal samples, my doctor finally pinpointed fructose and gluten as the main culprits. After eliminating them, my symptoms settled right down and thankfully, three years later, no more desperate loo dashes. This is Healthy Her with Amelia Phillips. Many women struggle with weight gain, bloating and IBS or irritable bowel syndrome after having kids. Gut health issues can not only cause this, but can also be a source to relieve these symptoms. The world of gut health research has come such a long way in recent years. So what is this new research telling us and how can we improve our gut health to better manage weight gain, bloating and IBS? To discuss this, I am delighted to be joined by New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Will Bolshewitz, otherwise known as Dr. B or the Gut Health MD on Instagram. Dr. B is a gastroenterologist and author of over 40 medical publications and regularly gives sold out keynotes on gut health. Dr. B, beaming in from South Carolina, thanks so much for joining me today. Amelia, what a pleasure. It's such an honor to be here and I enjoy any conversation where we get to refer to that special room as the loo. It's kind of fun for me. (laughs) Well, then let's jump straight into the loo and talk about bloating. What is actually happening on the inside when we look in the mirror and we think we might be pregnant again? So, and you know, I have people who come into my office on a daily basis. So even though I have this book, I don't know if people realize, like I'm a, I'm a fully practicing doctor. That's what I do for a living. And people come in on a daily basis and they pull out their phone and they'll show me these photos. And half the time it's a poop photo, like a poop selfie. And the other half the time, it is a photo where they say, okay, this is me in the morning when I wake up and here I am after, and they either say like, this is after breakfast or this is like two hours later or, and they look like they're pregnant. And obviously like that is, (laughs) they're not pregnant and it's a radical change that took place um, in their body in a very short period of time. So, you know, what is this? Well, you know, clearly there's a gas component Okay, so there's definitely a gas component. They're filling up like a balloon in a way. But I just don't get it because it can happen within, you know, 20 minutes of eating a meal. It's not like that food has suddenly, you know, landed down in your your gut at that time. Why is that gas being triggered? Yeah, well, and it's not necessarily the food that you just ate itself that is triggering that. It's more so that there's dysfunction of the system. And therefore, what, what's hap- actually happening is it's an alteration of your motility. So if, you're, if your gut is not moving, then um, this actually leads to the promotion of gas production. And when you start producing more gas, there's this weird vicious cycle that takes place where gas production leads to 
altered motility, slow motility, and slow motility leads to gas production and round and round the carousel we go. And that's, I think, what's driving this is that there's this alteration of motility, like a stunted gut that occurs in conjunction with this altered gas production all at once. And it's not necessarily the food that you just ate that's producing the gas. It's likely the stuff that's further downstream. Right. And so when you have a patient that presents with these big bloating issues, how do you help them get to the bottom of it? All right. Let me, let me come clean and say this. Bloating is one of the most tricky, challenging symptoms that we come across. So you have to be very thoughtful and systematic in the way that you approach gas and bloating. And, you know, for me in my clinic, I'm thinking about that there's four different things that that can cause a person to become bloated. So I'm going through this checklist of these four specific things and trying to figure out, okay, which of these are a fit with my specific patient? Okay. So what are the four? All right. So the first one, let me just like say, it's kind of weird, but it makes sense. Air that we swallow doesn't get absorbed. So if air enters your body when you're eating food, it has to come out one way or the other. You either are going to belch it out or you're going to pass it from below. But in order for you to pass it from below, it first has to wiggle its way through 20 to 25 feet of intestine. So like, you know, eight meters of intestine. So, you know, I'm looking for people who may be swallowing air and not realizing it. Some examples, a person who drinks a carbonated drink, So some of these people, they say, I have four or five cans of soda per day. Sipping through a straw. If you take a a moment and you think about the straw, the straw is submerged and whatever the water level is, everything below that water level is water, but everything above the water level is air. So you wrap your lips around it, you create a vacuum, and then you swallow, you just swallowed a big gulp of air. Oh, that's fascinating. Never thought of that. Yeah, next time you're using a straw. Think about this, take a look at it and look at where the water level is and then just recognize everything above that water level, it's just air in the straw and you're swallowing it down. And then like if you chew on gum, if you suck on hard candies, you start to salivate more. When you salivate more, you are swallowing that saliva unless you're spitting it out. I don't recommend that, especially in the workplace. And so you swallow this saliva and when you swallow, every single time you swallow, there's a chance that you're swallowing some air. So, and then the last thing is I'll often ask my patients, I'll be like, Hey, let me ask you a question. Do you ever get accused of being an aggressive eater? Now, like this is tangential, so I apologize, but I just want to say, I love people who are aggressive eaters. I think they're really entertaining. I like to watch them eat. You know, they attack their food. They're just like, ah, my husband. And now my kids are following suit. It does my head in. No, he's creating those bad habits are getting passed on to the next generation. One of many, don't worry, one of many. When I ask my patients, like, do you, you know, aggressively attack your food? Do you eat very fast? Do you gulp your drinks? Many of them will say yes. And when they do, you know, the issue is that when you're doing that, you are basically swallowing air every single time you go to do that. Number two is the food that you eat. So there are specific foods that are more likely to produce gas. When I think of these foods, I, to keep it broad, it's fiber, and FODMAPs. And so FODMAPs are the fermentable parts of our food. Um, Fermentable meaning that our gut bacteria will actually produce gas from them. I'm making them sound like they're really bad. In fact, they're actually incredibly healthy. They are prebiotic. 
these FODMAPs are good for us. They actually are good for our microbiome. But if consumed in excess, I mean, anything can be consumed to excess, anything, including water. If consumed to excess, then you can end up producing more gas. So like any person who has the five bean chili is going to produce more gas on that day than they would when they eat a routine meal. So what are these FODMAPs? I mean, we're probably going to talk about this more later, but basically FODMAPs include lactose from dairy. It includes fructose. You mentioned that for you, and that's often found in fruit. It includes galactans, which are inside beans. So beans, beans, good for the heart. (laughs) And it includes fructans, which are often found in garlic, onions, and whole grains. So... Again, these things are good for us, but if you consume more than your gut is capable of processing, then you will actually produce more gas as a result. Oh, that's really interesting. And that brings us to the third of the four. So we talked about swallowing air. We talked about the food choices that we make. And then the third one, which is completely intertwined, is the gut microbiome. So we rely on these microbes to process these foods for us. They are required in order for us to process these foods. And when a gut, when the gut is damaged, then you will find that you are less capable of processing and handling these foods. So it's not just the food itself. It's also the way that the food interacts with our gut microbes. Like if you take antibiotics, you're more likely to have food sensitivity and not be able to tolerate the five bean chili after the antibiotics. Is there a reason why mums, after having children can have more sensitivities with their gut and gut health. Like my story, for example, of foods that I ate, you know, that I had no issues with and I now have no issues with them again. But after having children for that period, I suddenly became more, more sensitive. Was my gut damaged? Think about the changes that occur during pregnancy. They're insane. They're insane. It's absolutely a miracle of nature what happens to a woman's body during those 40 weeks. And the changes that are occurring in the gut microbiome are just as equally wild and all over the place. All right, now think about the things that can change the gut microbiome. The food that we eat, our activity levels, our sleep patterns, you know, our like exposure to different chemicals, our hormones, our stress levels, okay? So those are the things, that's like a microcosm of the things that can affect your gut. Well, think about pregnancy. Every single one of those things is dynamically altered by pregnancy. Not to mention that even independent of that, you could, so you could like eat literally the same food that you normally eat. Your microbiome would still change during pregnancy because it's adapting to the evolution of the female body. And that change to the microbiome that occurs during pregnancy, which is inevitable, and it's a part of nature, that change is something that your body may take time to recover from in the same way that there's these other changes that your body takes time to recover from as well. Okay. So that can explain why for some of us mums, even you know, a few years after having children, we are having these bloating issues that we didn't have before kids. Yeah, that I, I think that that explains it. And then the other thing that to keep in mind as well is that hormones do alter the microbiome as well. And pregnancy may be over, but that doesn't mean that you are immediately back to being hormonally balanced. 
particularly if you are breastfeeding. And I'm not, by the way, saying by any means that breastfeeding is bad for the gut microbiome, like at all. Um, you know, in fact, I, I think that breastfeeding is like one of the most important things that you can do if you can do it. It's not always easy. Um, but, but I, I guess my point is that the body, anytime the body is going through dynamic radical changes, we should expect that those dynamic radical changes are going to have an effect and alter our gut microbiome. And it may manifest in ways that are unexpected. And we're like, oh my gosh, I, I never had a problem with that before. Now I do. Well, that may be one of the changes that occurred. And I guess if you think about mums as well, years after babies are born, our life has changed. Our stress levels have changed as well, which can directly impact microbiome. Yeah, no question. So it's quite interesting to think because the most challenging patients that I take care of as a gastroenterologist are the people who have been the victim of trauma or who have a history of disordered eating because there's a perpetual level of stress that their body just lives with. And that perpetual stress, if you never, if you never address that specific issue, they could eat the perfect diet, they could exercise, they could sleep, they could do every single thing that I would ask them to do, do it perfectly, and they still will not be better because it's that chronic stress that is holding them back. And so you bring up a great point because as a new mom, I mean, gosh, that's <laughs> it's a lot of work. And, um, and there's a lot of stress that comes with that. And there's also, it affects your sleep, obviously. Like it's not like you're sleeping well for a while. And we know from our studies that in times of stress, the way that this works is that the brain will release this hormone called CRH. And CRH, corticotropin releasing hormone, CRH actually changes the microbiome. And when you change the microbiome, you actually alter your mood, right? So the microbiome is connected in the brain gut. The microbiome is connected back to our mood. And so when you alter the mood to become more anxious, you produce more CRH. So once again, it's another one of these vicious cycles where a um, overtired mom taking care of their child. And by overtired, I don't even necessarily mean like immediately after birth. I'm referring to like just being a mom. <laughs> Um, and working really hard, like your child could be, you know, in secondary school as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah. You never sleep the same. You never sleep the same. Yeah. Because you're always, you're always a mom, right? 24 hours a day. So it's like being on call as a doctor, except it's every single day. So, and, and, and that stress that exists that comes with that can have negative consequences on the gut. I think it's very important for moms to make sure it needs to be like a non-negotiable that you have some space for yourself. Never thought of it like that. So just to close it out, number one, swallowed air. Number two, the food choices that you make. Number three, alteration or damage to the gut microbiome. And then finally, the fourth one, gut motility. And so, and we alluded to this, it kind of brings us full circle because the very first thing that we talked about is the person who has the pregnancy-like bloated belly and what's driving that, what's fueling that is alteration of the motility. When it slows down, it's more likely to make you bloated. So when we want to address bloating, 
couple of the things that I'm thinking about are I'm thinking about the possibility of introducing the low FODMAP diet. Um, I'm thinking about uh, the microbiome and how can we enhance the microbiome, so possibly a probiotic, but also I'm a big fan of gentle introduction of a prebiotic fiber. And then finally, can my patient or can this person be constipated? Because if you're constipated, you will be sensitive to everything and you will definitely get this type of bloated, distended belly. Now, constipation is not necessarily, I haven't done a number two for two days. You can actually be pooing regularly, but still be constipated. Is that right? That's one of the confusing things. And that's one of the major things that people need to know is you could literally poop every day and still be totally constipated. I don't get that. Or you could actually have diarrhea and be constipated. So, all right. So when with pooping every day, how is the body supposed to work? The way it's supposed to work is that no matter how many times we go, we're supposed to go and have a complete, complete evacuation that is um, satisfying and comfortable. And frankly, it should be pretty much effortless. Like it should just happen. And so the people who are pooping every day and yet are constipated, one of the key questions that I'll ask them is, do you ever feel like it's not a full bowel movement? Do you ever feel like it's a partial? And they're like, oh yeah, like I go, but I still feel like I got to go. Sometimes I go back and I go again 15 minutes later. It's like, okay, you're not really emptying. And the problem is that if you empty 70%, but you retain 30% and you compound that 30% day by day by day very quickly. Oh, you are backed up, baby. You are super backed up. So, okay, so that's that's one of the issues that you can see. Now, sometimes people will come in and say, I'm having diarrhea. And I'll hear their symptoms. They'll have gas, bloating, distended belly, nausea, loss of appetite. And all of those symptoms that I just described are what I see in my patients who are constipated. Actually, fatigue, I would add in there too. There's tons of fatigue. And so, but they're having diarrhea. So the question is, is it constipation or diarrhea? Well, there's this thing that exists, Amelia, that confuses both patients and doctors. It's called overflow, overflow diarrhea. And basically what's happening inside the colon is that the person is backed up and all the solid stuff starts backing up, but the liquid sneaks through. So the liquid comes through and then you have a watery or loose bowel movement. But actually the problem is constipation, severe constipation. And the solution is paradoxically to make yourself poop. And that solves the diarrhea issue. And I see this all the time in patients who come to me and will end up doing a colonoscopy. And then after the colonoscopy, they're like, doc, you fixed me with the colonoscopy. And the reason why I fixed them is because they completely flushed everything out. They got a fresh start. Let's talk about gut health. Research has been exploding in recent years around gut health, and it blows my mind that really microbiome research really only kicked off in around 2006 
didn't it? So it's growing at a pace that us everyday people can't keep up with. Can you give us some recent research that we might not know about that might be useful for improving our gut health? Research has shown us that there is a number one way to enhance the health of your gut microbiome. And that is to eat as much variety of different plants, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. Eat as much variety of different plants as possible. Different plants have their own unique biochemically separate types of fiber. And those unique types of fiber, think of them as different meals for these microbes. Specific plants feed specific microbes. One microbe might like kale, another one might like black beans. But guess what? If you eat kale and black beans, you'll feed both of them. And as a result, you will have the skill sets that both of them bring to the equation. We want a microbiome that is as diverse as possible. If you look at any ecosystem, whether it is the Great Barrier Reef, which sadly is not what it used to be, or it's the Amazon rainforest, which again is sadly not what it used to be, or it's our own gut microbiome. These are all ecosystems and they all have literally the exact same rule, which is that their health is proportional to biodiversity. I don't like snakes, but if you take the snakes out of the Amazon, you're not gonna be able to fill the hole that was made with the other animals. They're not designed for that. I don't like sharks, but if you take the sharks out of the Great Barrier Reef, you're not gonna be able to fill the hole in the Great Barrier Reef that's made when you remove the sharks. They're there for a reason. Same is true with our gut. We want as much diversity as possible. The way that we get as much diversity as possible is to feed the microbes. And how do we accomplish that? Feed them diversity of plants. Diversity of plants equals diversity of microbes, which equals a strong, healthy, resilient gut. That is the most important thing. Let's talk about weight gain specifically. What's happening in our guts that is causing the weight gain? And also what can we do to help our gut bugs support weight loss? Yeah. So we have been told that everything is just calories in versus calories out. That if you could just um, rebalance that, that you would lose weight. And there, I mean, I'm not going to deny there is some truth to this, you know, formula or statement. There's some truth to it, but it's not the whole truth. If it were that simple, why would we have such a weight challenge? Why would it be, why would it be so complicated? Well, and also I, I would just eat 1200 calories a day of chocolate cake and I just stick right. to that. So, right. <laughs> but we all know that's exactly. not going to be good for health. So it's not just about calories in and calories out. No, it's not. And, and I think that this is where the, the microbiome comes into play because it is a huge player in this entire process. So to give you an example, they have done these studies, Amelia, where they will take identical human twins. Okay. So two people who have the exact same genetics, but they find these pairs of twins where they are discordant for weight. One person will be skinny and one person will be obese. And what they've done in these studies is they will take the microbiome from these humans. I mean, basically they take a poo specimen. 
They take the microbiome from these humans and they will put them into mice. And then they will feed the mice. Okay, so there's two mice. One mouse gets the skinny person's microbiome. The other mouse gets the obese person's microbiome. And they feed these two mice literally the exact same food, same number of calories, no difference. They eat all the food. They're eating the same number of calories. What happens? The mouse that gets the skinny person's microbiome becomes skinny. The mouse that gets the obese person's microbiome becomes obese, yet they consumed the same number of calories. It's not so simple as calories in, calories out. Our gut has a lot to say with it. And I think of, okay, we all know that person who can eat whatever they want and they don't gain weight. God bless them. And then the flip side is we've all met that person or maybe some of the people listening at home right now are that person who they are doing everything within their power. They're doing what the doctor says. They're moving. They're eating. You know, they're, they're doing everything and they still can't lose weight. And this is where the microbiome comes in. How do we work with this? I think the solution is not just looking at calories. I think the solution is identifying foods that will properly enhance the health of our microbiome. When we study people who are obese, we find that there is a loss of diversity in their microbiome. And so the approach from my perspective, when it comes to weight loss, is centered around a plant-based diet that is high in fiber. And one of the beautiful things that we find, Amelia, is that when you consume the right food, meaning real plants, you can consume that food and truly not restrict yourself because the fiber will activate the satiety hormones and you will feel full. So they did this interesting study. I hope you don't mind me sharing this real quick. I'm a total nerd. I'm sure your listeners can already (laughs) tell. But they did this really interesting study and it was done here in the United States. And what they did is they got people to agree to go in and like basically be locked inside of a medical ward for four weeks. They gave them two weeks of a completely plant-based diet. And they gave them two weeks of a ketogenic diet. The, the beauty of the study is they knew exactly what they ate. They were locked up. They're all locked up. And, the, and they only eat what's given in the tray. But it was a study where they told them, eat as much as you want. Eat as much as you want. It wasn't, it wasn't like, hey, try to lose as much weight as you want. It was, look, eat till you're full. What they found is that the people on a plant-based diet achieved the same level of satiety as the people eating the ketogenic diet, meaning that they ate to the same level of feeling full, but they had consumed 600 calories less per day. So even though the ketogenic diet carries a reputation for weight loss, in this study, what you saw, and this is proof, what you saw is that you could eat without restriction on a plant-based diet and you would actually lose body fat. And that's what they saw. People on a plant-based diet lost more body fat, which is the goal, because they were activating their satiety hormones so they didn't overeat. What about the types of fiber or foods we choose to eat? Are some better for our gut bugs? I'm thinking yogurt, kimchi, kombucha, sauerkraut. Are there any particular foods or types of fiber that 
back more of a microbial punch. So I see it like this. I'm telling you diversity of plants is the key. And by the way, to be completely specific, if you want to count your plants, you want at least 30 plants per week, minimum. More is better, but minimum of 30 per week. So I'm telling you that this is the most important thing. I view these plants, Amelia, like my friends. They want to help me. They want to make me healthier. And so I want as many friends as possible, but I want to make the superfoods my best friends. So in order to remember the superfoods, I created for myself an acronym. And the acronym fits well for someone who's obsessed with fiber like me. F goals, F-G-O-A-L-S. F stands for fruit and fermented. By the way, fruit, I mean, you're going to hear some people say negative things on the internet about fruit. People who eat fruit lose weight. People who eat fruit reverse type 2 diabetes. Is not does not cause weight gain or diabetes. Fermented foods, I think these are old world traditions. It's time for us to bring them back. These are great foods and they are even healthier because they're fermented. G stands for greens. If you're trying to lose weight, greens are your best friend. You could eat bunches of greens until you're full and it will still be like 100 calories and have tons of nutrients. And then the other G is for whole grains. All right, so greens and whole grains. Whole grains are foundational foods for the microbiome. Great for fiber, great for prebiotics, great for resistant starch. O stands for omega-3 super seeds. I'm talking about chia, flax, and hemp. If you're a smoothie person like me, put chia, flax, and hemp into every single smoothie. Get all of them in there. Boom, three different plants. You're on a roll. Yum. Yeah. A stands for aromatics. I'm talking about the flavor foods. I'm talking about garlic and onions. L stands for legumes, very similar to whole grains. These are foundational foods for the microbiome. And then S, I'm just going to warn you, I kind of went crazy with S. S stands for three things. Shrooms. All right, so mushrooms. Shrooms. And, And the cool thing is they're not actually plants, but they have properties like plants. Yeah, mushrooms are more closely related to the animal kingdom than they are to plants. Yeah. And then uh, S is also for seaweed or sea veg. Seaweed has these unique nutrients that are hard to find in other places. And that's what makes it special. And you don't need to do a lot of it. You just need a little bit here and there. And then the last S, I kind of saved the best for last, is, again, I'm a nerd. This is sulforaphane. Sulforaphane is the phytochemical that you will find in cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, um, kale, arugula. Okay. Sulforaphane, if you dig into the medical literature, it is the most powerful cancer destroying thing I've ever come across. The best place to get it is actually from broccoli sprouts. You can get literally up to a hundred times more sulforaphane in the sprouts than you will have in the fully mature adult-sized broccoli. So you could eat an entire head of broccoli, or you could eat a handful of these little broccoli sprouts and get the same amount of sulforaphane. How do you buy broccoli sprouts? 
Are they dried? Are they in the fruit and veg section? And how do you prepare them? So they typically will be in the produce section of your grocery in a refrigerator. Now, you can grow them. Um, It's really not that hard. You need broccoli seeds, and then all you need is water and a mason jar. And the process takes about five to seven days where basically you just rinse and wash a couple times a day, and that's it. What about supplements? I think it's so interesting that you haven't spoken about, oh, you got to pop, you know, these probiotic pills or, or prebiotic pills. Is there a place for probiotics and prebiotics as a supplement? Yeah, there's definitely a place. There's no question about that. I think that my, where I take issue, Amelia, is that it feels to people out there like gut health is defined by the supplements. When in fact, it is your diet and lifestyle that is going to ultimately be the driver of your gut health. Diet and lifestyle should come first. So don't ignore those things. But when you get those things going, the supplements can definitely enhance. So I'm a huge believer in prebiotic fiber supplements. And there's a number of them that are out there. Um, So like a couple examples, wheat dextrin, acacia powder, partially hydrolyzed guar gum. And there's no such thing as one above the rest. Just like I believe in diversity of plants, I also believe in diversity of fiber supplements. So get a little bit of several of them. And then when it comes to probiotics, probiotics definitely can help. I I mean, I see it every day in my clinic, patients that have improved with probiotics. The challenge is finding the right probiotic for the individual person. So you want something that is anchored in science. Because there can be a lot of claims that things, you know, oh, this will do this or do that. But at the end of the day, we need to stay anchored in the science and let that, uh, let that guide us towards what is the best probiotic to enhance a person's gut health. And what about symbiotics? Yeah, I, I'm excited about the possibility of symbiotics. You know, so fiber we've been talking about as being this healthy thing. Why is it so healthy? Well, the reason why it's healthy is more than just that it's the preferred food of your gut microbes. It's in fact what happens when the fiber comes together with those microbes. Fiber meets microbes and then magic happens. And what you get are postbiotics. Postbiotics like short chain fatty acids. These short chain fatty acids are the product of fiber being metabolized by our microbes. And um, these short chain fatty acids have healing effects like right there in the colon, healing effects throughout the entire body. I mean, we could talk for 10 minutes about how wonderful and anti-inflammatory they are. They are as good as it gets. And a symbiotic is essentially the combining of the probiotic and the prebiotic, but in a way that is um, preserves the probiotic as it passes through the digestive tract. Exactly. So a symbiotic is the entire idea of the symbiotic is that you are creating the the formula. So there's this formula, prebiotics plus probiotics equals postbiotics. So when you take the symbiotic, you basically are encapsulating the prebiotic and the probiotic, and then you're releasing them there in the colon where they can mix and magic happens. So final question. For us mums out there that are struggling with bloating, IBS, or weight gain, over and above everything that you said today, what would your one recommendation be that mums can go home today and implement to help improve their gut health? 
All right. So I would love to dust off my number one tip from about 30 minutes ago, which was to eat a a wide diversity of plants. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Uh, Totally. I'm hearing you loud and clear, my friend. Another little tip is to take some magnesium before bedtime. Great one. I love that. So I love magnesium because magnesium helps us to sleep. Sleep translates into a better microbiome. Magnesium actually helps us like to remain calm. It has an effect on our mood. Again, good for the microbiome. Magnesium prevents headaches. And finally, magnesium helps to keep things moving through our digestive tract. And we want to keep things moving through because if you suffer from gas and bloating, that may be one of the things that can actually fix you is to get things moving a little bit quicker. Dr. B, it has been enlightening, fascinating. I am definitely going to go and sprout my own broccoli sprouts. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Healthy Her was presented by me, Amelia Phillips, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Matalov. Sound production by Matt Nicklich. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the free Podcast One Australia app or search Healthy Her. And for more tips and insights on this topic, visit my show notes at ameliaphillips.com.au. If you like my podcast or think other mums might find it helpful, please spread the word by sharing a link to your network of fellow mums. And feel free to drop me a line on Instagram anytime. I'd love to hear from you.